Good morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 13 through 17 in just a moment. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and be flipping there. As we go through this course of sermons called Life and Teaching, we want to pay close attention to Paul's instruction to young Timothy. He said, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. What we believe matters. What we believe will work itself out into our daily living. That's how belief functions. There's no such thing as divorcing your beliefs from your actions. You do what you believe. So if you really, really, really want to know what you believe, make a list of what you do on a daily basis and you can draw that back to your faith, what you believe. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching for in doing this, you save both yourself and your hearers. If the whole church is gonna be the missionary, that's our tactical question, remember? What if the whole church is the missionary? What if the whole church was the missionary? Then we have to represent God well in the public square. We have to do that precisely. Today we're gonna to talk about Trinity. And, and, and I'll say this, if, if you're gonna to minister to our Muslim friends in our city, you're gonna to have to get this one right. This one's gonna be at the center and the crux of your evangelism. So don't think it's an academic doctrine. And, no, it's a very practical evangelistic doctrine. If we're gonna be the missionary and you care about those who are perishing, we gotta get this one right. Gotta get this one right. Did you know that everybody's a theologian? Everybody's a theologian. Even atheists are theologians. A theologian is simply someone who formulates a thought about God. Atheists are just really bad ones. Everybody's a theologian. The question is, are you good or are you sloppy? It matters what we think and believe. It matters how we think about who God is. We talked about that last week. Who is God? It matters... What is Trinity? It matters who Jesus is. And we're going to talk about Jesus next week. It matters who the Holy Spirit is. As I said last week, we asked and answered the question, who is God? The Bible gives us some glorious glimpses of God's nature. And one of the most amazing truths we learn in the Bible about God is that He is triune. The Trinity is essential in understanding what the Bible says about the nature of God in the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's so important that this doctrine was investigated over 300 years in the, lo in the local churches up until 381 AD at the Council of Constantinople when the church landed on a way to communicate what the Bible taught so that we can all get it right like our pagan friends Connell and Donald had to experience. Seeking to know God and really seeking his kingdom is not boring. Seeking to know God and seeking to know his kingdom is not boring. It's never been boring and it never will be boring. If knowing God in all of his glory is boring, 
Your heart is still dead in its transgressions and sins. We're talking about God. God. And if he's boring, you don't know him. You don't know him at all. There's nothing boring about the nature of God. In, in fact, it is only when we stare into his face through the gospel of Jesus Christ that our souls come alive. And we experience new birth and amazing things begin to happen. Are there some killjoys who seek God and make the study of God boring? Oh yeah, there are. And I certainly hope I'm not one of them. But we don't want to take lightly the glories of God's nature as revealed in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it's in seeing God and who He is that the gospel is revealed, the gospel of the kingdom, and we are brought to life we're mobilized to share that knowledge in our city that is so sorely lacking. Seeking God and knowing God as directed by His Word while being led by the Holy Spirit and actually following the Lord by turning from sin is the absolute thrill of a lifetime. I want you to understand this morning that we're engaged in a titanic struggle for knowing God. It's the battle of the public square. And we're being opposed by a dark enemy who disguises himself as an angel of light and doesn't want us to know and worship the true God. So I invite you this morning to seek after God with an open Bible, in fellowship, while turning from sin, and being willing to go wherever he leads. So today we're going to ask and answer the question, what is Trinity? I'm going to read from you. These notes are available for you on the blog, theologyinthedirt.com. I'm going to read from you our state, or read to you from our statement of belief about the Trinity. We're going to read Matthew 3, 13 to 17 here together in just a moment. But I want to read to you what we say in our statement of belief. We believe in one God, eternally existing in three equally divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect both in His love and in His holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. Immortal and eternal, He perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about His eternal good purposes to redeem a people for Himself and restore His fallen creation to the praise of His glorious grace. I'll commend to you a couple resources, John Frame and Wayne Grudem, for further and deeper granular study on the nature of the Trinity. And that's good for your fellowship time and your radical life groups and your home and your personal study. But this, as I said before, as we go through this life and teaching course, this is not an academic class. This is a sermon, and the sermon's rooted in a Bible, not just mere writings of men. So we are going to spend a lot of time in the Bible this morning. And so I hope you got your Bible ready. If not, you can use these notes to go back and study it outside of here. So if you would, I'd like you to stand with me. We're going to read Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. It's going to be on the screens behind me. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. 
But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John allowed him to be baptized. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Three rivers, you may be seated. We've asked and answered the question, What is the Bible? And we've learned it's God's Word. The inspired Bible. The inspired word of God that is the truth records for us Jesus' baptism with the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Father all participating and all distinct and present as one God at the same time. God does not exist in modes on a timeline. He is one and he is three at the same time. Now, I want you to know we're going to get to some applications. So I need you to hang with me as we go through lots of scripture. But that statement that I just gave to you is a summary of Matthew 3, verse 13 to 17. And let's unpack it very quickly. Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is who the Bible presents as God the Son. John in his gospel proclaims this about as clearly as anybody can. John chapter 1, as a side note, and this is fun, John grew up in a Hellenistic world. And Hellenism is, let me give you my, my, the Silver Creek version, that's the Greekification of the world. Hellenization was the Greekification of the world. It was the attempt of the Greek empire to make everything Greek in nature. Two of the philosophies that ruled their world were Platonic and Aristotelian philosophy. Plato said all truth comes down from above, it's revealed. Aristotle said we know truth by observing creation. So two philosophies at work in John's world. John does an amazing job as a good old fisherman who knew his world. And he states for us in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, who Plato thought he knew, but he doesn't know because this Word is none other than Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says in verse 14, and he became flesh, he took on flesh, he tabernacled among us, and he put God's glory on display. John presents Jesus as the Son of God, God himself come and take on flesh to define who God is. We read Matthew describing Jesus here as the Son of God. Wow. But we read also in Matthew here that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus to empower the Son in his redemptive work as he has taken on flesh in order to display God's glory and provide salvation through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So the Holy Spirit witnesses to who Jesus is by his presence descending on the Son. And then the Father speaks his word out loud. The Father proclaims His Word at Jesus' baptism from Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1 as the Father proclaims, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. God never departs from the Word. Jesus always preaches from the Bible. The Holy Spirit always backs the Bible up and the Father always speaks His Word. And when He said those words in Matthew 3-17, He's coming from Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. Psalm 2-7 says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said, You are my Son today. I become your father. 
Psalm 2-7 looks forward to the coming of Jesus as the Son of God, who's the King in David's line, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So the Father testifies to the reality that Jesus is the Son, and that He is God, and the Father is putting His witness on Jesus. And then He quotes from Isaiah 42-1 where He says, this is my servant, I strengthen Him, this is my chosen one, I delight in Him, I have put my spirit on Him, and He will bring justice to the nations, my Lord. Isaiah 42 1 describes Jesus as the servant that <laughs> John you can't make this stuff up man we did we coordinate no Isaiah 42 1 describes Jesus as the servant Isaiah will declare in chapter 53 as the one who will bring salvation to his people by dying for their sins as he's empowered by the Holy Spirit so Matthew 3 13 to 17 we have what is referred to technically as a theophany, an appearing of God in all of his glory. Matthew 3, 13 to 17 in its own form is an Exodus 19, Genesis 18, Ezekiel 1, and Isaiah 6 moment where God displays his glory for man to glimpse for a moment, to look at as he passed the mountain and he wasn't in the earthquake or the wind or the fire, but there was the small whisper. We have that moment here the Son of God has taken on flesh. The Spirit descends on Him and the Father says, this is the one. This is the one. Worship Him. Exodus 19, God displays His glory. Genesis 18, God, the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus, walking in the form of man with two of His angelic hosts come to Abraham to tell him what they're about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel 1, if you hadn't read it, go read it. It'll blow your mind. And he says, this is a vision of the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 6, one seated on the throne, the train of his robe filling the temple, and the place is quaking, and smoke is all over the place, and the angels are crying, holy, 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 and Isaiah goes, woe is me. Uh, Matthew 3, 13 to 17 is one of those moments. God in his full glory on display for man to see. He is God, and he took on flesh to display the glory of the triune God. That's not boring. Do you know we... We're made to gaze at that. Do you know we got to see that in full glory before sin blinded us to it? The glory of the triune God. Next, this is the next bold point. Jesus commands us, Jesus commands us to baptize new disciples in the name of God, which he declares triune Jesus commands us to baptize new disciples in the name of God which he declares triune Matthew 28 19 to 20 go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of God no baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember I'm with you always to the end of the age notice Jesus says the name of not names. That's a massive statement. Don't miss it. The grammar of your Bible is also inspired. The name, not names, we're not tritheists. There's one God. The Bible's clear. There's one God. And this one God in his personhood is distinct as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says it here. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three distinct persons. 
Jesus affirms the oneness of God and his distinct nature as three persons in one God. Now listen, this has massive implications on who we are and what we are to do. Massive implications because we are made in that image. Wow. Wow. The disciples' discipleship is therefore to be Trinitarian. Teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. Everything in the Bible that teaches us who God is shows us Father, Son, and Spirit. Meaning in our discipleship, we are to know the Father, we're to know the Son, we're to know the Spirit. Three distinct persons, one God. When we get to know the one God, we get to know these three glorious parts. He's a good Father. He's an obedient Son. And He's an empowering, gift-giving Spirit. He is immaterial and completely material. He is holy and righteous and good. And he's a giver in all things, and we are to know him like that. Do you know that knowledge is available to you through repentance and faith in Jesus? It's that simple. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Glory. And at that moment of repentance and faith, something amazing happens. The prophets in the Old Testament tell us that God takes out a cold, dead heart and he puts in a new live heart. And he gives us his spirit and causes us to want to obey his word and to teach us to walk in his way. Isn't that awesome? And that's what the triune God makes available. Our next bold point of observation is this. Paul prays the apostle Paul praise for the Corinthians in the triune name of God. 2 Corinthians 13, 13. This is his prayer. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Paul's prayer for this church that has gone wild in so many ways, and he's writing to correct so much of their behavior, praise this prayer for them. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Paul's understanding of the triune God is clear. He's clearly informed by his encounter with Jesus. Because remember, Paul is a good Jewish boy who trumpets hard the oneness of God. Behold, O Israel, behold, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He knew that. And yet as he's persecuting the church, Jesus appears to him, knocks him off of his horse, and says, I've got a mission for you. You are to preach this God, who I am, to all the Gentiles so that they know. And so Paul has this moment of conversion, this transformation, where Jesus corrects his theology and teaches him the Trinity so that as Paul comes to faith in Jesus, he now sees the one God and his beautiful distinction because he receives the Holy Spirit so that as he's ministering to people, he doesn't pray in the generic name of God. That's not how you do it in the public square. Listen to me very carefully. If we're going to be the missionary, never be ashamed of the name of Jesus. Never be ashamed of the formula given by the Bible of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Pray in that name. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, meaning his authority he's given to us. And he says, baptize them in this name. So when you have a public square ministry, dare not fail to speak his name. That name is the name above all names. It's the name that distinguishes God from those who are not God's. 
don't be ashamed of his name. Because it's the name of the triune God that distinguishes Jesus among the little G gods of the world. And we don't just serve a generic God. We serve the triune God of the Bible who's the God. And so therefore, when we're in the public square, Trinity is key to our evangelism and key to the power. Because let me just say this, sometimes it could be our evangelism is powerless because we don't do it in the authority of the name or we're not doing it at all. Your town, depending on who's doing the counting and the demographics, you have 70 to 80,000 people who have no gospel witness in their life. And if we don't want them to go to hell, we must speak to them in the name, the only name that will save them. And it's not just generic God, it's God defined because this is where theology is important. This is why we have to watch our life and our teaching carefully because in so doing, you save yourself and your hearers. Generic God with no cross will not save you. And we don't just have faith in faith. Faith isn't a magical power. Faith is, has to have an object. So if we have faith in a generic God who doesn't die on the cross in the form of God, Jesus, then we don't have faith in anything. Our faith is in something else. It's misplaced. Faith has to be in the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who took on flesh and died in our place for our sin, was buried, rose on the third day, ascended to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit to empower the mission and come inside the people of God so that we could say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because only in the name of Jesus is there salvation. For there's no other name given among men whereby you must be saved. And it is the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the easiest way to say it is Jesus. Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus, let heaven and earth proclaim. The name of Jesus is the name of the triune God. And Paul prays for them in that name. Therefore, we must do the same. Paul greets his audience. Paul Peter greets his audience as chosen by the sovereign work of the triune God. 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, let me just remove a little mystery for you here. This little word apostle is not a mystery. It's not a um, title. It's one of Jesus' gifts to his whole church. And the word apostle means sent. So somebody takes on the title apostle and never gone anywhere other than her hometown, just kind of smile and wave. It means sent. Jesus is the sent one. Jesus is the ultimate apostle of the Father. He was sent from the Father to take on flesh, to die in our place for our sins, so that as the church, the body of Christ, looks like it's resurrected Jesus, part of the church's job is to be apostolic, meaning it's sent on mission. That's what apostolic means. Make sense? Ain't no mystery. It's clear. The church is apostolic. The church is to be sent. Its members are to be sent. Three of us church, you are sent. And so Peter, the sent one, one of the sent ones of Jesus, and three of us church, can I just say to you, you are sent one too? Because you're part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ has the ascension gifts of Jesus. One of them is apostle. So every single one of you have a ministry of apostleship. You're sent on mission to the public square to proclaim the triune God. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. Oh my gosh. Wow. 
This is a powerful room right now. It's a powerful room right now. Because it's full of sent missionaries to the public square carrying the triune name of God. Wow. You feel that? That's good. That's powerful. But listen, listen to how Peter speaks of it. He greets his audience as chosen by the sovereign work of the triune God. He said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Wow. Wow. And that, that deserves a sermon all by itself. Chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient. The sprinkled blood of Jesus. Chosen according to the Father's foreknowledge. Chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Chosen to be obedient and to be sprinkled, cleansed from sin with Jesus' blood shed for them. Listen, God's people are precious and so precious that each member of the Trinity participates in our salvation and sending. Wow. Wow. Moses, we jump back to the beginning. Moses presents God the Father and the Spirit as creating together. Now Paul's going to round that out in Colossians. That'll be our next observation about the Trinity. Moses is going to present God the Father and the Spirit as creating together. In Genesis 1, 1 to 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So Moses gives us a glimpse of the Holy Spirit with the Father creating. Now Paul... With Genesis 1, 1 to 2 in mind, because he preaches from the Bible, places Jesus, the Son of God, as the means by which the Father and the Spirit create. Listen to Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Wow. Father, Son, and Spirit in creation making everything. Is this just me? Or does that make your heart sore? Because what's happening at creation is this one God, triune in nature, is making everything. And everything bears a component of what He looks like and especially us that He made in that image. Do you think that humans are special? And by the way, Trinity is one of the core doctrines to the most robust pro-life ethic on the face of the planet. Because there's no other creature on this planet that is as complex and glorious as a human being. Wow. Wow. Jesus teaches and maybe, for me, some of the most um, holy words in the Bible, in John 14, 15 to 18, Jesus teaches that the Spirit is one with the Father and the Son. And He even declares that the Spirit's presence with us is His presence with us. One God, three distinct persons. Listen to this carefully. If you love me, 
you will keep my commands. This is John 14, verse 15 to 18. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Quick unpacking. Jesus says the spirit is another one. Notice in verse 16, I will ask the Father, he will give you you another counselor. This little word, another, is a beautiful word. There are two words for another in the Greek language, alos and heteros. Heteros is another of a different kind. Alos is another of the same kind. Jesus says, I'm going to give you alos, counselor, another one just like me. Why is that significant? Because he changes personal pronouns in verse 18. He's talking about the Father and the Son. He's talking about the Spirit. The Spirit is He, which by the way, very important theological point. We talk about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not it. Please do not use impersonal words to describe a personal God. He's not an it, not a rock, not a thing. He is a He. He is a person. And as a person, He relates to us as persons made in His image. Make sense? So every time I hear people talk about Holy Spirit and say it, I cringe on the inside and I don't want to be that one who corrects everybody because I don't want to be that guy so don't make me be that guy right just don't be that because listen rocks don't relate to humans because they're it's spouses don't relate to each other as it's they relate to each other as persons and so when we come to God and refer to him as it do you think in the spiritual realm it might affect communication a tad not because God's like moody It's not that. It's because if we come to him as an it, we are saying something about what we believe and who he is and could form a coldness in our heart toward him. So it matters that we not refer to him as it, but he. Because he is a person who Jesus said will be inside of us. And then notice verse 18. Jesus said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm coming to you. He said, me and the Father are going to send the Spirit. This is who he's going to be. And then he says, I'm coming to you. So quick question. Who is the Holy Spirit's presence with us? Jesus' presence with us. So if you have the Holy Spirit, you have Jesus, the eternal creator God dwelling on the inside of you. Wow. Trinity is huge for us understanding the nearness of God. God isn't distant. God isn't off in the distance somewhere. Paul even said it in Acts 17. We looked at that when we asked who God is. We learned that God is very near and is relatable. Jesus said, if you've trusted in him, the Holy Spirit comes to him. And the Holy Spirit is the presence of the Father and the Son with us. So that if we are Christians, we have the triune God with us. Wow. You feel that? That's awesome. John declares that if people don't remain in Jesus' teaching about who he and the Father and the Spirit is, one God, three distinct persons, then those people don't have God at all. Listen to what he says in 2 John 1, 7 to 11. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. So you tell me the world's got deceivers in it. Yes. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. 
This is the deceiver and the antichrist, which watch yourselves so that you don't lose what you've worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching, but goes beyond it, does not have God. So if I have Christ's teaching and get outside the bounds of Christ's teaching, I don't have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. Whoa. So if Jesus teaches me who God is and I stay inside his teaching, I get Jesus, Spirit, and Father. But if I get outside of it, I have none of them. Wow. So does Paul, do Paul's words, watch your life and teaching carefully, come into play here? Because so doing, you save yourself and your hearers. If we get outside the bounds of what Jesus has taught, we don't have God at all. But if we stay in those bounds, we get Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now notice this, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. For the one who greets him shares in his evil works. Let me tell you a fun little story. Now, I don't know if this is right or wrong, good, bad, or indifferent. You may not like me after I tell you this story. But I was on a bobcat one day on the backside of our property in Silver Creek. The boys were little, and they were riding the bobcat with me. And this dude comes by, and he wants me to stop. So I turn off the bobcat and open the door, and we're chatting. And he wants me, I learned real quickly, he's a Jehovah's Witness. And he wants to start sharing with me from the Gospel of John. Little did he know he was dealing with a guy who has a degree in linguistics in ancient Greek and Hebrew. And so I let him go for a few minutes. And I said, hey, wait a second. So I went inside and got my Greek New Testament. Boom, we did John 1, 1 to 14. And he was dying to leave my property. He was trying to, I said, no, 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 I need, no, no, no. And, and I actually said, I'm not going to let you come in my house because John said not to let you in my house. I take that seriously. Don't even let them in your house. You do with that what you want to. But I said, since we're on the backside of my property, I do want to evangelize you. I want you to believe the gospel. I want you to know the resurrected Christ. The Jesus who is God. Not a God, but the God. Now I want you to receive the Holy Spirit who's one with Jesus and with the Father. And dude was losing his mind. He's like, I got to get down the street. And I was chasing him. My boys, you hang on the bobcat. This dude's lost. And I'm walking after this guy trying to share with him that, listen, if you don't have this teaching, you don't have God. That's what the Lord says. That's what his word says right there. Very practical for your evangelism. Right there. But we have to stay inside Trinitarian teaching. We don't leave it, which is why our little pagan friends, Connell and Donald, in their funny little way, help us to get our head around an understanding of the Trinity. There's an addendum at the bottom of these notes from the Athanasian Creed. I'm not going to read it. You can read it on your own. Real quickly, what about the Trinity in the Old Testament? The long statement, I'm just going to quote it here from Zach Likens, and then we're going to do some application. What about the Trinity in the Old Testament? The Trinity was a mystery hinted at in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. The human authors of Scripture, particularly the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, look back and interpret the Old Testament in light of the reality of the incarnation and the indwelling presence of the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Trinity is a mystery that is foreshadowed and anticipated only to be fully revealed in the New Testament's witness to the incarnation of the Son of God.
Within Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity serves to demonstrate that it is the triune God who accomplishes salvation through the calling of the Father, the incarnation of the Son, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. This promised salvation which the Old Testament anticipates, the New Testament proclaims as revelation and accomplishment. That's a lot. You go unpack it. <laughs> what are we going to do with this? We're going to do with the doctrine of Trinity. How are we going to apply it? Number one, it's a belief issue starting with believe that God is one. Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Believe God is three persons and believe that each person is fully God. You need to believe that. That's going to be key in your evangelism in the public square. God is one. God does not share any equal in the universe. He's completely unique. It's what holy means. He's completely set apart, completely unique. There's none like him. God's oneness is qualitative in that regarding, regardless of how you deal with what the Bible says about the hosts of heaven, God alone is God and he alone is creator of all things. And as Colossians tells us, he created them all for his purposes and they sit under his reign. God is one. But God is three persons. Though God is one, God reveals his oneness as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And each person is fully God. We've seen that evidence this morning. Listen to this very carefully. It is not our job to remove the mystery of God's triune nature. It's not our job to remove the mystery. My aim this morning isn't to make it more clear for you. My aim this morning is to present to you what the Bible says and I want to encourage you to live in that mystery because what we learn in the Bible is God gives us enough to know him as we need to know him but he doesn't give us the eternal nature of who he is. We will get to do that in eternity. As I said last week, 10,000 years into that sucker, we're just going to be on the outskirts of Ezekiel 1 glory trying to figure out what that creature with four faces is. Pretty awesome, what are you? Well, I'm the outskirts of God's glory. Cool. Right? And we're just going to be getting to know that so we get enough to see that he is awesome and holy and he invites us to know him. He invites us to commune with him. So be okay with the mystery. Our job is not to understand fully right now. Our job is to marvel. Our job is to worship and adore. Every time God reveals himself like that in the Bible, we see those receiving the rest of revelation doing something amazing. They fall down. They get on their face. They're emotional. They're moved because their creator just revealed the outskirts of his glory. And the best they could do is just get down on their face or take their shoes off and get down on their face and worship. So I don't want to remove the mystery. I want you to marvel at Jesus. I want you to fall in love with the triune God and have him wreck your world. So that the only thing that remains is him. Secondly, avoid analogies. Avoid analogies and embrace the text of Scripture and be okay with this mystery of what we don't understand. When it comes to Trinity, there are loads of poor and easy-to-repeat illustrative teachings that have been designated historically as bad teachings. J.I. Packer, in his little book called Knowing God, which is a great little book, you ought to get it, he believes the second commandment to have no other gods before him includes making images that depict the Lord as well as bad verbal illustrations. His reason 
is that the calves that Aaron made in Exodus, if you read that carefully, it's funny stories in the Bible. He makes the calves, and when Moses comes to hold them accountable, he's like, what happened? He said, well, they brought me this jewelry, I threw it in the fire, and out walked this calf. It's like, come on, man. The ultimate butt-passing moment. If you notice, though, Aaron was using those calves to have a festival to Yahweh. He wasn't trying to move their attention from the Lord. He just made an image of the Lord. And God told Moses, you better go crush that sucker. You better go get, get rid of that, and I'm going to kill them all. I'll start over with you. And, and Moses was like, please don't. Please don't. Packer's point is that any image, verbal or physical, pulls away from God's glory. Therefore, he says in the second commandment, just don't do it. So that's where we just are okay with this mystery of, I can't verbally say it any better than what the Bible says it, so I'm going to let the Bible speak, and I'm certainly not going to draw a picture. Therefore, we worship. So therefore, be okay with the mystery. God is absolutely approachable, and in his approachableness, he wants, to ask, he wants us to ask, seek, and knock, and get to know him, and not put some fake thing on display that we get it in our words or in our pictures. Just state what the Bible says and be in awe. Third, Trinity models unity and diversity. And God created humans and the family unit in his image, the image of Trinity, and thus gave us the responsibility to steward his image with care. God also intends the church to model unity and diversity in, a, in every holy way. Trinity is the image in which we're created and the image we are to model, unity and diversity. Humans are unity and diversity as individuals. You're a physical body and you contain immaterial parts that you cannot neatly divide. You're a body and a soul. And the components of that soul are incredibly multifaceted. You have a mind. Your brain is not your mind. You need to wrap your head around that. Naturalism has taught you your brain is your mind. Your brain is not your mind. Your brain is the organ that your soul uses to regulate your body. That is biblical. And that is Christian. And so you are a gloriously complex image bearer of the triune God. And you are infinitely valuable to him because of that image. And he wants us to know that so we know how to care for ourselves and care for each other. Meaning we need physical care and we need care that's not physical. The words we speak that speak life, not death. The ideas that we insert into each other's minds that are life-giving, not death-creating. Reminding each other of scripture so that it can begin to get into our souls, affect our brain and affect the rest of our body. Trinity is a holistic doctrine that cre creates or teaches that humans are created gloriously and marvelously and complex and are worthy of care. So don't buy any theology that mistreats the human either physically or emotionally or ignores one part over the other. Trinity is what informs that all of our parts are vital. Does that make sense? Again, it's the most robust pro-life ethic that there is. Womb to tomb, everything in the middle. Life. Humans together as a family unit displays Trinitarian glory. Man created 
in triune glory, woman created in triune glory, children created in triune glory. And it's no wonder the dark kingdom comes after that to destroy it because it is the image worked out in creation and puts it on display and the enemy wants to destroy it because the enemy cannot create it. So the enemy wants to destroy it. Fight for your personal health, fight for your family health, fight for your church health, fight for your family's health, fight for holistic health because it is Trinitary and it's the reason we do it. Finally, worship. Worship. Said this already. When God reveals himself in scripture to people, their response is always worship. And I want you to hear something very important. Worship is not an emotive response. Worship is a volitional choice you make because you've seen the face of God in Jesus Christ. You can't manipulate worship. It doesn't matter if the lights are low or the music's your style. If the low lights and stylistic music is what moves your soul, it's not worship of the triune God. It's just the same as a Coldplay concert. I get the same goosebumps when I hear Coldplay. And some of y'all get the same goosebumps when you hear Zach Brown. So do I. A little chicken fried, and I'm feeling it, baby. I'm like, yeah! Right? You, you're like, yeah, it's feeling good. And then you realize that's the same feeling I had at church. And then hopefully, you're starting to correlate some things and go, wait a second. So is that feeling Holy Spirit, or is it just something else? And, and then you start to realize that worship is not merely an emotional response to an environment. You can manipulate that. Worship is a volitional, it's a choice that image bearers who've been redeemed by Jesus take to focus their mind's attention and heart's affection on Jesus because there's nothing better. He's life. And whether it's my style or it's funky, Jesus is the point. So that whether I'm in India, Afghanistan, Turkey, Rome, Georgia, doesn't have to be my style the same. Jesus is present, so I will choose to sing to him. That's real worship. You can't manipulate it. You can't bring it. You just simply do it because he's worthy. And when enough people love him that much, he cares to tangibly display his glory. He said in Jeremiah 29, 13, when you seek me like that with all your heart, you'll find me. The inverse of that is true. If you don't want him that bad, you're not going to find him. So Three Rivers, this isn't put on to manipulate you to do something. This is simply an opportunity for you to volitionally choose that Jesus is better than life. And you will give him his due. Not because you have to, but because you can't help it. Because when you see the risen Christ in salvation, you're never going to be the same. Never going to be the same. So my question for you is, do you want that? Do you want that, God? Or you just want what God can give you and hoping that he'll... Like give you some stuff outside of here. So let me go pull the lever, maybe throw some money in the box, and maybe God will make this thing go away. If that's, listen, if that's what brought you here, then okay, maybe the Lord wants to start you there. But just let me say to you, that's not what, who he is. He's not a divine 
Las Vegas machine that you Yankees change this right and pull the lever and hopefully one in a million shot he pours out a little for you that's not how that works he promises that if you come after me and you really want me I'm there I'm already there and I will tangibly display my glory for you to have and enjoy because he saved you for that you want that if you want that you can have that if you don't want that you won't get it but the triune God puts that mystery for us to come after and enjoy. I'm going to pray. These guys are going to come and provide an opportunity for us to respond. And when they're ready, and they've waited on the Lord as long as they want, they'll lead you to sing. And I invite you to sing to the Lord because he's worthy. Father, in Jesus' name, we want you. We want you. We don't want your stuff. And if we do, we pray that you'd cause us to repent. Convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Because we don't want your stuff, we want you. So I say to you, Lord, we want you. I believe most of the people in this room want you. So Lord, we ask that you would be exalted and be glorified in our desire to just want you because you're worthy. You're worthy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. We see it. We see glimpses. And Lord, we want to see more. We want you. We want you. So Lord, we ask that you would be exalted. You would be lifted up. And you would be the centerpiece. You would be the object of our affection and our attention right now. And Lord, anything that stands in the way of that, I pray you crush it. Because it would be a, a precious thing for you to destroy those things. We want you. Father, there are hearts that are cold toward you that are unconverted even in this room. They don't believe. I pray, Father, that you would rip out of them a cold, dead heart and put in a new life heart. And that you would fill them, give them your Holy Spirit and cause them to want to walk in your way. I'm, I'm begging you. some they're just cold toward you life stuff bitterness hurt it's hard to look past those big thick walls Lord, I pray you break them down and re blow into a burning flame that ember of love for Jesus Christ and cause everything else to grow dim in the light of your glory and grace and there's some who've been longing praying and fasting and seeking for you to display your glory would you show Lord, we pray that this would be something that's not just for this gym or this fellowship but be for, be for the 70, 80,000 who are in darkness in our city who are lost they don't know Jesus they've been deceived we pray that you would send us as evangelists preach this good news of your kingdom and your salvation, your reign, your triune nature, all that you are. Father, help us not to be ashamed. Help us not to be ashamed, but to be bold and courageous. Father, we pray for repentance. God, where the sin is hidden, I pray that you would uncover it. Willful and even presumptuous things, uncover them. 